it would be wonderful to go back to Nehemiah chapter 8 and do Nehemiah 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12 in one sitting. Because it's one continuous, one continuous flow. And, you know, we obviously have to break it up because of time considerations. But just to kind of remind you of what's going on here, Nehemiah chapter 8, they get the wall built, they get the law out, and they read the law. And this reading of the law just completely impacts the people. They're getting back to the basics of God's word. So then what happens is they start doing the feasts again. They start giving themselves back over to the Lord, which takes us to Nehemiah chapter 9, where there is now a chapter of praise and confession to God. To say, Lord, we are not the people you've called us to be. Which then now leads them to chapter 10 to say, we don't just want to use our words. We're actually going to sign a covenant that says, Lord, this is what we're going to do with this information. I tell you, that's powerful. That's one of the things that I try to do. Anytime I do a wedding and we get ready to do the vows, I always try to explain to people that are here, these vows are just not mere words that are being spoken. It carries a deeper meaning. It's a covenant. That's not a word we use a lot nowadays, this idea of covenant. And as we mentioned, I believe it was last week, covenant comes from the Hebrew word literally meaning to cut. And according to most covenants back during Bible times, you would actually sacrifice an animal to do the covenant. And that carried a little bit of a different connotation. Number one, there was fellowship. There was food. I want to let you know this. In this Hebrew culture, in this Middle Eastern culture, everything is food. The idea of eating together, showing that oneness. So they would actually take the animal and then eat together to show a oneness. And number two is symbolic. That if you break this covenant, you get cut up. If I break this covenant, I get cut up. And you see this all the way back to when God made the covenant with Abraham, that these animals were cut. So they're making a very strong statement here. This is not just you in a moment of just spiritual emotion saying, You know what, Lord? I'm going to read more. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to go to church more. No, this covenant is they're actually taking this group of people here together, verses 1 through 27. And they're going to sign it in front of people. And they're going to have curses and blessings. And they're going to say, we are going to do this. You know, we don't have a similarity of that today. It'd be almost like in a small group, you looking at the guy across from you and saying, I'm looking you in the eye right now and telling you, this is the man of God I want to be. And if I'm not being this man of God, get involved in my life. Call me out on this. Do this. A real open honesty here. So they're going to now make this covenant... That they're really going to want to go deeper in the Lord. So let's learn from this. Let's talk about literally what they were going to do. And then let's also then talk about how it applies to us today. Lord willing, time willing, I want to do chapters 10 and 11, which puts us in really good position to do 12 and 13 next week and finish up the book of Nehemiah. So with that being said, verses 1 through 27, we're not going to read it. But you can go through the names there, and any time you see a list of names in the Bible, please remember this phrase, God's refrigerator. The Lord has said for all of eternity, in these 27 verses, I want these people's names recorded. Because they were willing to publicly say, we're going to go deeper in our walk in relationship with the Lord. And the Lord is basically saying, hey, these names are important. I want to remember them too. He takes the names, he puts it on his refrigerator. So, now, 28, please. Now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the Nethanim, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, everyone who had knowledge and understanding, these joined with their brethren, their nobles, 
and entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and his ordinances and his statutes. Now, that's the introduction to basically say they all got together and they all agreed to this. That's a couple little neat points in there. Please note, verse 29, a oneness. These joined with their brethren, the nobles, these group joined together as one. There's a oneness there. We're going through the book of Acts as a family, and there's this constant repetition in the book of Acts of one accord. Now, we live in a world today, especially in good old America here, we have very fenced-off boundaries. Sometimes, literally, we fence off our areas and our properties. Now, there's a lot of times that when we see each other at church, we have this casual relationship where we see each other once a week, we talk for maybe a minute or two, and we use terms like, oh, yeah, I know him. No, we really don't. We know of them. We know a little bit of their background. Any of you that are on Facebook, you may have literally hundreds, if not thousands, of friends. Now, are they really your friends? Let's just be honest for a second. You will get Christmas cards for people here in a few months. You'll send Christmas cards to people. There's really not a relationship. But yet we have this idea that there's a closeness here. No, what we're talking about from a biblical oneness, verse 29, joining together. They're, they're going to know each other. And what you see in the book of Acts, there's such be such a closeness with each other that, you know what, when I don't see you, it impacts me to say, I hope they're okay. I'm going to check in with them. And I know them well enough that when I run into them and I shake their hand, I can just say, something's not right with you today. What's going on? Is everything okay in your life? Because we have a tendency to use words like, oh, I'm fine, I'm good. And I tell you, if you really understand the definition of fine and good and compare it to God's definition of fine and good, I know a lot of people that tell me, oh, they're doing good. And I look at God's definition of what a good, spiritual, strong Christian walk looks like, and I look at what they think they're doing good at, something's not going to line up there. And I'm not being judgmental, but I'm saying sometimes we have a tendency to throw those words out. I'm fine, I'm good, and we just kind of let it go. They're talking a deep oneness here, guys. The term that we use in the New Testament is called koinonia, and it shows this idea of literally being one, united together in Christ as the body of Christ. And they decided to have this oneness, this unity, and what was this oneness and unity going to be doing? Verse 29, entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law. Not just talk about God's law, not make a few little verses about God's law. We're going to do what God's word says. This is a theme that we've been talking about a lot out here. What would actually happen if we would actually just do everything that this Bible says? I mean, what would happen if we actually took these verses that God said, this is what it means. Love one another. Respect all. Pray for everybody. Do good. And stop and say, I think he really does mean that. So they're really going to take God's word and do it. So before we get to even the rest of this message, we've got to stop right here and say for us to fully get this message, we have to understand that there's supposed to be a oneness and a unity in the body of Christ. And number two, there needs to be a desire to say, I want what God's word has for me. I want to walk in it. Not just talk about it, mark it, underline it, but walk in it. When you get that... Now we can talk about the specific things that they did. Now, when I go through the rest of this chapter, I wrote down five things. I know some of you are a note taker and you like a little bit of an outline. I see five things that they're doing in this chapter that they made a commitment to. First one that we see, verse 30. We would not give our daughters as wives to the peoples of the land nor take their daughters for our sons. Remember in the book of Ezra, they got in trouble. They got in trouble because they started intermarrying and intermixing. I've heard devotions. I was reading about Solomon. Solomon starts out so good, then ends up with 700 wives and 300 concubines. 
There's a breakdown in the system towards the end. In fact, it says at the end, he got so involved, so involved with the idolatry of his wives and concubines' religion that he started then allowing them to set up altars in Israel. This is the guy that built the temple. This is the guy that two times God appeared to him to talk to him. And Solomon is now going to say, well, you know what? Maybe there are other gods out there. That's crazy when you think about it. That's like as crazy as when you go back and you think of the book of Exodus, that this nation of Israel saw the plagues, saw the Red Sea parted, saw the manna, saw the water of the rock, and the next thing you know, Moses leaves for a little bit, and now there's a golden calf that we're going to worship. Wow, this is human nature. This is what we do. So we've got to be careful here. So what we see, the first thing they're doing is they're going to make sure that they're not going to give their daughters over to foreigners and they're not going to also allow themselves to marry that. God is asking for separation. Let's talk about this for a little bit. Can you go with me to 2 Corinthians 6? So that's the practicality of what the Lord is asking for. Now let's go to the New Testament here and go a little deeper with this. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Guys, this is a tough passage. I want to make sure you know that as we get into 2 Corinthians 6, when you really start looking at what the Lord says. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion has light with darkness, and what accord has Christ with Baal, that was a false god, or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? Now, this, this sometimes steps on people's toes. What the word is saying right there carries a lot of context. But one of the context is, as a Christian, marry a Christian. And please don't marry a Christian in word only, in name only, I should say. Marry somebody who has a deep, solid walk with the Lord. The problem is, this is what happens. We get our heart attached to someone first. And then when our heart gets attached to them, then we, it's hard to let go. What would happen if the first thing we do is say, you know what, listen, unless you're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ and you're living it, I don't want my heart to get attached to you. Now, that bothers some people. Because they say, well, you know what? I had a gal one time tell me this. She got upset. Um, she was coming out here to church, and she was getting involved with a guy that was not good in any way whatsoever. And so we talked to her about it and said, listen, this is not going to take you down a good path. And she says, I can't find any good Christian men. This is the best guy I could find. And basically, don't attack me. And we said, we're not trying to attack you. We're trying to say, listen, this is going to cause issues later on. Right now, he looks good. He sounds good. And you know what? He's even been willing to maybe come to church every now and then. And I'm happy that you're happy with God. Uh, no, the Lord is saying right here, don't be unequally yoked. Now, some of you have testimonies of where you started out unequally yoked. And it ended up good. Isn't God good? His grace is good. His mercy is good. Amen for that. So just because God can bring beauty out of ashes doesn't mean that that's a pattern that we're supposed to follow. I'm not picking. I'm not attacking. I'm just saying God's word says right here. We've got to be careful about this. Number two, this is not just also talking about marital relationships. Be careful also with just life relationships. Be careful with who you choose to hang out with. Be careful with the communion that you have in verse 14 and the fellowship that you have in verse 14. Now, I'm not saying that as a believer that we're supposed to never talk to a non-believer again. That's not what this passage is saying. This passage is saying is, listen, it's who you choose to spend with, time with, and unite with is going to also affect you. You've got to be careful. 
And he goes even deeper. Look at verse 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. You are the temple. I mean, think about that. Imagine Old Testament, the temple of God, where the Shekinah glory, God exists, and somebody says, hey, do you care if I bring in a false statue and set it up in here? Never. But yet what this passage is saying is you are the temple of God. And as soon as you allow a falseness to come into your life, it's like setting up an idol in God's temple. Verse 16, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, look at this. Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Verse 17 is pretty strong. Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. God is calling us out of the world. But for some reason, as believers, we always want to jump back in and yoke with the world and have fellowship with the world. I I tell you this a lot. To to really live the life, you're going to be weird. That's just, that's a fact. You're going to be strange. And we're supposed to come out from that. We're supposed to come out from this worldly system. You know, the word saint, and we kind of don't use it in the proper context. Because what we think of saint now, we think of St. John's Church or St. whatever, Mark's Church or something like that. And we think it's like this super Christian status. The word saint literally just means to be made separate. That you're special. God has called you out of it. You are sanctified, separated from the world. And the first thing you see them making in this covenant is, guys, this is how we're going to live it. We're not going to get involved with those false religions and those false people. We're not going to let our daughters get involved with them. We're not going to marry their daughters. We're not going to do it. Same thing still applies to us today. What happens next? Let's go ahead to the next one here. Uh, what are we up to now? Verse 31. If the peoples of the land bring wares or any grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we will not buy it from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we would forego the seventh year's produce and the exacting of every debt. They're going to honor the Sabbath. And they're going to also honor the seventh year. Remember, you're supposed to take, according to the Old Testament, their sundown Friday to sundown Saturday off. And they were supposed to take a year off every seven years. Now, I've used this comment with you before, and I've used this joke with you before. You know where it's going. But imagine going and, and applying for a job. And the guy said, here's the rules of the job. These are your hours. This is your pay, whatever. And he would say in the interview, hey, just want to let you know, too, every seventh year you get the whole year off with pay. You would think that's the greatest job in the world. And you would stop and say, now, hold on a second. You're going to literally pay me for a year's worth of work, and you're not asking me to come in. For a whole year. Yeah, that's the way we do it here. Every seventh year that you get a whole year off. And if you work with us for 50 years, you'll get the 49th and the 50th year off because we do something called the year of Jubilee too. And I mean, it's just, you would stop and say, this is the greatest job in the world. So God comes to the nation of Israel and says, here, this is the plan. I'm giving you every sundown Friday to sundown Saturday off. And here's the catch. I'm also giving you a complete year off every seventh year. They didn't do it. And since they didn't do it, you know what would happen. They went into punishment. They were also in a spiritual timeout for 70 years because they missed 490 Sabbaths. God says, no, they say right here, this is what we're going to do. We're going to actually live it out right now. Now, why was it hard for them to do? First one for us was separate. This one, it's faith. It's a lot of faith. It's a lot of faith for them to say when year seven starts, I'm not going to plant a crop. 
because I, I trust the Lord's going to provide. I'm going to look at my wife and my five boys and, and trust that for a whole year, God says, just, just let it all go. And trust that there's going to actually be so much surplus that I'm also going to help take care of you in year eight. That's a lot of faith. I don't know what they did. Did they start out pretty good? And then a month or two into it, say, boy, we've got to be doing something here. This, this isn't working. The Lord has asked us to do the same thing today. He's asked you to walk in faith. Have you ever started out in faith? Then all of a sudden fear, worry, and anxiety kicks in. I think about Peter walking on the water. And as long as he kept his eyes on Jesus, he was great. But the Bible says when he looked down at the waves and the storm, he began to sink. I have done that so many times. I start out in faith. It's powerful. It's great. And then I look around me and I start to sink. What would happen if they really did verse 31? We're taking the day off and we're actually taking the year off. And also verse 31, we're going to also cancel out debts. Man, what an amazing thing that would be. But it takes the faith to do that. First word, we're going to separate. The second word, we're going to walk in faith. Now, before we get to the third thing they said they were going to do, any quick questions, comments? What do you think? Marv. Well, what they said, though, was the seventh year God was going to miraculously just let the ground rest and the seeds and stuff that were left over was going to sprout up and produce crops for you. Yeah. So They may have had a surplus. The Lord does work that way in some ways. He did say with the manna, make sure you collect enough. But he did say that he was going to have enough come up during year seven, too, that things are going to work out. God's going to farm for him, yeah. Yeah, there you go. It was like idle acres, but with a crop, so... Anybody else have anything here? John? What kind of jumped out at you? Oh, I actually wasn't making a joke that time. I really just didn't hear you. Seriously. I was actually, I respect my elders. I was trying to be nice. So. Oh, yeah, you are the temple of God. Verse 16, yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, you, you are the temple. Yep. Gotcha. Seriously, I was just didn't hear what you said. All right. Ryan. Ryan. Yeah. Ah. Remember when you used to work second shift? Yeah. <laughs> How quickly we forget. Like the woman forgets the pain of labor, the Bible says. Ryan. Uh, verse 29, it says they entered into a curse and into an oath. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like uh, at the end of, near the end of the book of Deuteronomy, yeah. where there's a mountain for blessing and a mountain for cursing. Yep. And it's like, if you don't follow God's laws, these things will happen to the nation. If you do follow God's laws, these things will happen to the nation. That is exactly what it's like. And it's really neat. If you go study that out in Deuteronomy, the two mountains, and this is what I, I, I've studied, one mountain was kind of a blank landscape where they did the curses, and one was supposedly a very green landscape where they did the blessing. So therefore, they kind of split the people up. So when they read the curses, your mind would be looking over at that mountain of just barrenness. And the thing is, if you go read the curses and the blessings listed there in Deuteronomy, it happened like God said. He said, listen, if you don't do it, and this is the thing about the free will of the Lord. He's not forcing these people in chapter 10 to do this. He did not force the people in Deuteronomy to do this. He did not. He, they, they are saying, we choose to do this. We choose it. 
It's a free will choice. No one's going to force you into a deeper walk with Christ. No one is. Someone else I thought had a hand up. Yes, Megan. No, I don't, I don't take it that way anyway whatsoever. Intermarrying was talking about the false tribes following false gods and the true God of, of uh, being Israel. I don't think there's any context whatsoever of intermarrying in between races. Acts says we're all of one blood. We don't follow the Sabbath. That's a very good question. And we'll kind of do a quick little teaching on the Sabbath here. Of the Ten Commandments in the New Testament, nine out of the Ten Commandments are repeated again. The only one not repeated in the New Testament is to honor the Sabbath. In fact, it says in the book of Colossians, let no one judge you in Sabbaths. So, God said the Sabbath was designed for us. He, God didn't need to take a rest. He says, you guys need to take a rest. So God designed the Sabbath for us. So he is telling us that there's supposed to be a day of rest for you. And I use this example out here all the time. I use the example of me. I usually shut my phone off Thursday evening after supper, and I turn it on Saturday morning. So that's, I call my family day. And so we kind of take the day. Now, that doesn't mean we take the day off from the Lord. We still do devotions. We still do prayer. Sometimes church things pop up. Last Friday was VBS. We served a VBS. It doesn't mean you take a day off from the Lord, but the Lord is telling you, take a day from your normal routine to take a break. Now, so what the problem is, we know so often use our quote-unquote day off as, that's when I'm going to get the yard mowed, get the yard weed whack, and we spend all day doing stuff. God is saying, you know what, just take a day and rest with me. Spend some more time in prayer with me. Spend some more time in the Word with me. It's a wonderful thing. So my Sabbath is Thursday into Friday. I obviously work on Sundays. So that doesn't work for me. You will not see in the New Testament the idea of this Sunday day off. And please remember once again, the idea of the Sabbath was sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. You don't see it about being Sunday. We have made it morphed into this idea of taking Sundays off. And what happens is I usually at this time have someone come up to me after the message and say, well, I still think it's a good idea to take Sundays off. If that works for you, then amen. Take a Sunday off. But don't look down on someone else because they have to work on Sunday and their day off happens to be Tuesday or Wednesday or something like that. So, good question by Megan. Nine out of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament. The only one not repeated is honor the Sabbath. Jesus himself in the Gospel said, I am Lord of the Sabbath. Every day you're serving me and following me, not just one day of the week. Anybody else have anything here before we move on? Okay, so we got the first one. What's that? What's that? Take the year off? I wish um, I can't. I can't make a. I can't make a biblical case. Uh, I mean, you can go to your employer and say uh, it's the seventh year. Uh, will you pay me? Um, you can try it. I don't know. I don't see that happening. No, you don't see that in the New Testament being repeated. So, but you know what? You got a whole Sabbath eternity. That's a good thing to look forward to as well. So, first thing you have is separation. Second thing you have is faith. Following faith now. Taking a year off, taking the day off, the rest of this 
That's all about just different aspects of faith. Now what you see in verse 32 is faith in your giving. Also we made ordinances for ourselves to exact from ourselves yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of God. And what they do now is they talk about this is what they're going to use that money for. Verse 33, you have showbread, burnt offerings, holy things. This is what they're going to use all the money for. So now he's saying that what else we're going to promise to do? We're going to take part of our income and we're going to give it back to the Lord. So therefore, it can be used to further the kingdom of God. Now, that's a faith thing. I mean, mean, think about this. You know, so we get paid, I get paid here, and and right off the top, 10% of my gross goes right back to the Lord. I always tell the church out here, you got a good deal because I'm required. You know, i got to pay you back for paying me. But 10% goes back to the Lord. Now, that is not something that we're supposed to struggle with. And we can get into a discussion later on about is it really supposed to be 10%, whatever. And I'd be more than willing to talk to people one-on-one about it. The point of the teaching tonight is not whether it's supposed to be a literal 10%. I think 10% is a good baseline that God has given us in the Bible. But the point is this, that you're supposed to look at your income and say, this isn't mine to begin with. This is the Lord's. So therefore, why would I not want to support what God is doing? So therefore, I'm going to give back to the Lord. So therefore, it can go support missionaries overseas. It can go support outreaches to people. What a blessing it is that as a church, we were able to send down a very nice love gift with the mission trip that went down to Mexico. What a blessing that is. What a blessing is that we can support different ministries doing outreaches to Muslims. We can support missions overseas. We can support missions on the college campuses. We can support local needs. So we don't have in verse 33 showbread, grain offerings, Sabbaths, new moons. We don't have that. We do have some things that are just as practical. Electric bill. (laughs) We have things like that. We have property taxes that we need to pay. But you know what? We're also able to go support, outreach, and etc. So the Lord is saying, I encourage you to give in faith. And I can tell you right now, and the point of the teaching is not about the giving, but it, it, what a blessing it is. That is something that Dawn and I have done before we got married. We've always given 10% to the Lord. God has honored us, and it just blessed us. And I cannot tell you enough, but when you put God first in everything, including your finances, the Lord honors that. I just cannot tell you enough. Sometimes it's an element of faith, but God honors that completely. Okay, now that we've given financially, what are we supposed to do? Verse 34, we cast lots among the priests, Levites, and the people for bringing the wood offering into the house of God. According to the, our father's houses at the appointed times year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as is written in the law. First word we had was separation. Our second word was faith. And then the next one we have is the idea of giving. And now what we have in verse 34, serving. Now, this does not sound very exotic spiritually, but in verse 34, they had to have groups of people that went out and collected wood. You're sacrificing animals continually. It keeps the fire going. Any of you that have that uh, outside fire, my mind's blanking on it right now, but the outside furnace used to help heat your house, you you are constantly collecting wood all year because you know you're going to burn it in the winter. So we had to stop and say in verse 34, practically, hey guys, we need to take turns gathering wood. Well, that doesn't sound real spiritual. You know, Bob's back at the temple sacrificing animals. They're over there eating showbread. They're over there praying with somebody. What's my service for the Lord today? I'm on stick duty. But it was vital. It was absolutely vital. 
It's vital that people stuck around and helped clean up after VBS because there was push pins all over the floor. We don't need kids to get on top of those. It's vital that someone comes out here and is willing to clean the church. It's vital that sometimes there's a dirty job that happens and there's a widow's hot water heater that broke and it's not very glorious or glamorous, but somebody crawls under that house and fixes it. Sometimes we've got to pick up sticks and we've got to remember that. There's moments of serving. So God has asked us also to find a place to serve. What else do we do in verse 35? And we made ordinances to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of all trees year by year to the house of the Lord. They start offering up their first fruits. What type of first fruits? Verse 36. Firstborn of our sons, our cattle, as it's written in the law. The firstborn of our herds, our flocks, to the house of God. And then in verse 37, you got the first fruits. You got the dough. You got the wine. You got the grains. First fruits goes to the Lord. These supplies would actually be used to help uh, feed people. These supplies would be used for the actual priests and Levites because according to the law, they weren't allowed to own land. They had to, in faith, trust that people in faith were going to give. Because when people give, they get to eat. If people chose not to give, they don't get to eat. This is a great system. I hate to say it, when you get to chapter uh, 14, the system has completely broken down. People are working on the Sabbath. Priests and Levites are back working in the field because people quit giving. And Nehemiah has to come back and get everything back in order. But the way it's supposed to work is people give up their first fruits. And so therefore, God blesses it. They get more because out of faith they did it and other people get blessed. I'm not trying to make a joke about this. This is something I've done with all my boys. When they were younger and they can't pour their own cereal, they pour their cereal in a bowl. And they got this from their mom. Um, because Dawn is just overly protective over a bowl of cereal. You just have to see it sometime in the morning. It's the strangest thing. If I go eat some cereal out of her bowl, she gets angry immediately. She wakes up angry, but she's even angrier when you try to take cereal out of her bowl. So I go to the boys. I pull their, pour their bowl of cereal, and let's say they're having... Uh, uh, see, the thing is, I don't even know what the real cereals are because we always buy the generic. Um, but it's, uh, I think ours is called Colossal Berry Crunch. I don't know what it is. And I, so I always take the red ones. And I take one and I eat it. And I say, first fruits. And they always get angry and they get upset. I always say, yeah, but here's the principle. You get more. Then I fill up their bowl more. Well, the boys got smart and they said, so are you saying you're God that we have to? <laughs> so I said, yes, I am. So... Uh, <laughs> But it's this concept of you give something up in faith knowing that God's going to honor it. Now, now, please put yourself back in the position of a good Jewish guy raising his farm and his family. So it comes to the season, and guess what? You have a new lamb born. That, that's a big deal. This, this is important. This, these animals that are going to be born on your farm are going to be your food. They're going to be your milk. They're going to be everything you need. And God says, hey, do me a favor. The first animal born, give to me. And we'd say, like, I will gladly give you an animal, Lord. I will. But can I wait till they're all done just to make sure I have enough myself? No, I want the first one because you're going to trust in faith that I'm going to take care of you the rest of the year. That when you bring the crop in and you're thinking, okay, well, this is a good crop so far, but I don't know what's going to happen. There's a hailstorm that could be coming. Locusts could be coming. I could lose the rest of the crop. So why would I give up my first stuff? Shouldn't I wait till I make sure I have enough? God says, no, I will always make sure you have enough. So the concept that God is saying here is now give of your resources. 
So the first thing we have is separate yourself from the world. The second one, walk in faith, give financially, find a place to serve. And the last one is give of your resources. Don't hoard anything. Like I said, we're reading in the book of Acts at home. And the book of Acts makes it so clear. If anyone had need, the people gave willingly. So often out here, and I say out here, I mean here in America, we give out of our surplus. We have an extra fill-in-the-blank, so therefore I'll give it away. What would happen if the Lord says, you don't have an extra fill-in-the-blank? Can you still give it away and trust me? Can you still trust that I'm going to meet your needs and take care of you? And this is the promise that they're making. They're signing this covenant to do that. Because look at the end of verse 39. We will not neglect the house of our God. Wow. We will not neglect the house of our God. What an amazing picture that is. To stop and say, Lord, it's yours. Everything is yours. Every moment of my day is yours. Every item I supposedly own is yours. Every resource I have is yours. It's all completely yours. So why would I want to hold on to anything? And think about how much we hold on to. Physical possessions, financial possessions, our free time. Nah, Lord, it's all yours. What do you want me to do today? I'm yours. So that's the covenant that they sign. I wish it worked out better than what it did. But like I said, when we get to the end here of Nehemiah chapter 13, you're going to see that it did not work out as well as it was supposed to. Any quick questions, comments? i got one point in Nehemiah 11 here before we close up. Anybody got anything? Okay. Oh, sorry, Megan. I think it's reaching a point of where you just give him your life. I mean, this is the hard part about Christianity. When we stop and try to teach this point, it's hard for us to grasp. If you, if you stop and say, what has God asked of me? The simple answer is everything. I mean, he's, he just wants everything. You know, think about what it says in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, in view of the mercies of God, to offer up your body to God as a living sacrifice. So what's the first fruits we're supposed to give? Our, us. The term the New Testament uses is we're a bondservant. I, I have no rights. I have no privileges. I have no nothing. I'm a servant of the Lord. I trust the Lord. And so therefore, Lord, everything is absolutely yours. So my day is yours. My time is yours. My money is yours. It's all yours. So I guess to answer your question, Megan, it's not that we hold anything back for us. It's all the Lord's. And we just trust that he's going to lead and guide us in all ways and all things. Anybody else have anything before we get to uh, Nehemiah chapter 11? The interesting thing happening here in Nehemiah chapter 11, we're not going to do the whole chapter because what happens is you're going to see once again quite the list of names starting in uh, right around, what is it, verse 4. Remember once again, God's refrigerator. He wants these names recorded. What's going on here at the beginning of Nehemiah chapter 11, verse 1? Now the leaders of the people dwelt at Jerusalem. The rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to dwell in Jerusalem. The holy city and nine-tenths were to dwell in other cities. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. So then you also have another list of people in verses 25 on, same chapter, dwelling outside of Jerusalem. Okay, now let's follow what's going on here. No one wanted to live in Jerusalem. It's a rundown city. Sure, the temple was rebuilt years before, finally got the walls rebuilt. No one wanted to really live there. 
So this is what they did. They said, we're going to have a draft. We're going to pull out names. One out of ten people, you're going to have to live in Jerusalem. Because we've got to have somebody here to live here. Everybody else wants to go out to the better ground, the better whatever. You've got to remember in Nehemiah here, Jerusalem is constantly being threatened. They said they're going to be attacked. No one wanted to live there. So what happens is there's two groups. One group who was forced to live there. Their names got called in the draft. Verse 2, the other group that said, hey, we'll do it. And what does it say in verse 2? And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. Can you go with me to Luke 17, please? It'd be great if we could say with a clear conscience that everything that we do is all for the glory of the Lord and it's all for Him. But there is an aspect of our lives where there are certain things that we don't want to do. And we just don't. But we still do it. That's what we're talking about here in Nehemiah chapter 11. There's a group that their name got called. I guess I'm staying in Jerusalem. There's a group that said, I'm willing to do it. And the people said, bless you for doing that. There's going to be times in your Christian walk where the Lord is going to bring something to your life. He's going to say, would you willingly do this for me? And you have a free will choice. He's not going to force you to do it. You can say, yes, I will willingly do this for you, Lord. And the Lord will say, bless you. Thank you. There's other times you're going to say, no, I don't want to do that. And the Lord is going to say, well, let me read you this parable here. Luke 17, verse 5, And the apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. So the Lord said, If you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, Be pulled up by the roots, and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. And which of you, having a servant plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and sit down to eat? But we not rather say to him, Prepare something for my supper, and gird yourself, and serve me till I have eaten and drunk, and afterwards you eat and drink? Does he thank that servant, because he did the things that were commanded of him? I think not. So likewise you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. Now that's not really cheerful. And you don't hear a lot of teachings on that passage. Now the full context of it is, and I encourage you to read the whole context, is in Luke 17 what we're dealing with is we're dealing with forgiveness and repentance. If you look at verse 4, how difficult it is to people to say, I forgive you. So therefore, in verse 5, the apostles say, increase our faith. How am I supposed to forgive people? It's so difficult to do. And Jesus tells this story, then he finishes up in verse 10 saying, yeah, sometimes you just have to. You have to forgive them. You just got to let it go. I heard a pastor teach one time saying, you know what? If you can't forgive, then in faith, Lord, forgive. Lord, I can't forgive, but in faith, I forgive. Increase my faith. That's what it's talking about. But there's also carries the other connotation of this chapter, and it's saying this. There are certain things in life you do because it's just the right thing to do and it's your duty as a Christian to do. And I don't want to give specific examples because I don't want to make it sound that way. But I'm just telling you out here at church sometimes, there are certain things that we stop and we say, wow, Lord, I feel led to do that. I, I want to do that. I, I just That's going to further the kingdom. I'm excited about it. And, and Lord, amen, send me. I'm willing to stay in Jerusalem. Ah, oh, bless you. There's other times where things pop up. It's like we need somebody to do it. And everybody looks down. And you say, you know what? We've got to get this done. So somebody has to do it. We're just going to stand up and do it. It's our duty to do it. It's just the right thing to do. 
and then we're going to do it because it's the right thing to do. I'm telling you that there's probably something in your life right now, and you know exactly what I'm talking about, where you feel led to do it. Oh, Lord, I just am excited about this. Yep, it's a little out of my comfort zone. To God be the glory, I'm going to do it. You're excited. And there's other things that right now you're thinking, I don't want to. Please, Lord, send somebody else. Please, Lord, no. And God says, I need you to. And it's your duty to do. Just like the people back in Jerusalem, some of them willfully stayed. Other ones, their name got chosen for them. I just want to encourage you because I can only tell you from my own personal experience. When there's something that I'm dragging my feet on doing, once I give it over to the Lord and say, Lord, I let it go in faith, I trust you on this and I'm going to do it, God says that's all I needed and it always works out. I had a phone call a week or two ago that I was really dreading making the call and I kind of, Dawn knew I was dreading it. And I remember Dawn saying, You're going to feel so much better when you just get it over with. Isn't that the truth? And if there's something here tonight that you need to do, maybe someone you need to forgive, somebody you need to confess to, something you need to repent of, or maybe it's something that God says you just need to do it. Look at the end of verse 10 one more time. So likewise you, when you've done all those things which are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants, we have done what was our duty to do. Okay, Lord, I'm going to do it because it's just the right thing to do. I'm going to stay in Jerusalem because my name was called. It's the right thing to do. So that finishes up Nehemiah 10 and 11. Hopefully, Lord willing, time willing, we can do 12 and 13 next week. And we can hopefully finish that up. Anybody got any final questions, comments here about anything before we close up? All right, would you guys uh, stand with me? Let's pray. Lord, as it has come to you now, we want to do it, Lord. We want to live it. Just as they made the covenant, we want to make the covenant too. We want to separate ourselves from the world. We want to walk in faith. We want to give to you. We want to serve you. We want to give of our resources. And we want to willingly sacrifice to say, Lord, it's all yours. Help us to see their example, to learn from it, to grow it, and have a unity and a oneness and to walk in the word and all that we do and say, thank you for this, Lord. We ask for your blessing upon Dearborn. We ask for your blessing upon the upcoming outreaches. All for you, Lord. And we lift this up in your name. Amen. You guys have a good week and God bless. If you got anything you want to pray about, feel free to pop on up. If not, we will see you guys next week.